Christopher and I, and all of us at TDPS, are still grieving the loss of my dear friend and our beloved premier party person, Anne Rice. But my mother's literary legacy gave birth to a diverse and wonderful community of readers and fans who continue to celebrate her work online. We invite you to join them on the Facebook page dedicated to Anne's legacy. That's where you'll receive the latest updates on new editions of her work and all the exciting changes coming to the AnneRice.com website. Also on the Anne Rice Facebook page, you can join the mailing list to receive all the latest news and information about her forthcoming celebration of life in New Orleans. That's at facebook.com slash Anne Rice fan page, no spaces. If you believe, as we do, that Anne's work is as immortal as her characters, then join us at Anne Rice fan page on facebook.com. See you there. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shawkwinski. And you're you're listening to a Russian-themed episode of TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric, mispronouncing a bunch of Russian words. We really just have to give a giant disclaimer. We're going to kind of get right into it because this is a big true crime TV club for us today. But this is an entirely Russian story, and we don't speak Russian, and we don't know how to pronounce Russia. (laughs) Well, actually, you just did, so... (laughs) So clearly you do know how to pronounce no, Russia. No, I, I pronounced it wrong. I pronounced Russian. Russia. What I yeah. meant to say was, yeah, so we're off to a Russian, great start. Russian, not so great. We can pronounce Russia, but that's it. Yeah. The rest of it. And I don't think that's actually what they call their country. So, you know, in that way that we've called other people's countries what we want to call them, and that's not what they call their country. Like, right. I don't think Germany is actually called Germany in Germany. No, it is In German, and Spain is not called Spain. And we just make up our own names for other people's countries. Rus. Is that it? I think it's Rus. No idea, but I'd be willing to bet it's not Russia. I think this conversation is going to quickly expose how little we know about Russia. That's so correct. I'm going to move off it. It's south of the Beverly Center, so I, I can't be held accountable. <laughs> it isn't south of the Beverly Center. <laughs> it's extremely north east of the Beverly Center. It's east west of the Beverly Center. <laughs> um, okay, okay. The documentary we're talking about is called An Unknown Compelling Force. Which is the winner of... Maybe the worst title ever, but it does have significance in the story, so okay. Yes. But uh, The focus of this documentary is the Dyatlov Pass incident. Which I would have called the story. And I will say this. I think a lot of our listeners know this story because podcasters are all over this story. It's one of the history's greatest unsolved mysteries. And so I am going to be dying to find out what Eric thinks of the Dyatlov Pass incident. Um, Absolutely. Because so, everybody, that's everybody's 
totally. That's why people have dialed in to hear what I think of this 60-year-old unsolved that, crime. That is why they've dialed in. It's actually our podcast. We're not on CNN, girl. So they're actually <laughs> they're tuning in to hear what you have to say. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Unless they found us by accident, which happens. We get lovely notes from people who find us by accident. But anyway. Surprise. Um, okay. So because this is a, a 50-year-old story, uh, they start right up front by giving you the synopsis of basically what the mystery is. So we're just going to dive right into it. There's not going to be a lot of suspense around how this unfolded. Um in 1959, nine Russian student hikers entered the Ural Mountains during a snowstorm and died. Uh, they failed to report back and were found frozen to death in subpolar conditions. They were miles from their shredded tent, and they were not wearing their winter clothes. Or even their shoes. Yes. There was no evidence of an avalanche or natural disaster, and some of the victims suffered crushing injuries, and one's tongue and eyeballs were missing. Mysterious lights were seen in the sky around the time of the incident, and the Russian KGB swarmed the site shortly after the bodies were found. So, warning, this is one of those documentaries in which the documentarian has made himself... The star the of star. the documentary. It's like, oh my God, this guy. Liam Lee Gilyu is his name. Uh, he is going to use the hiker's actual photos and diaries to put the story together. And he does a pretty good job of that. I give him credit for that. But he really does make this about he does this. He makes this choice to return to the actual site yes. of the crime 50 years later, which is sort of OK. I don't know why that would have any impact on you interview whatever who you can interview, which he does do. Right. But, yeah, it, it becomes about his journey back to this place, as right. though somehow it's about him, which, you know, everybody drink. It's not. It's not. We do that on the show when I make it about me, apparently, but you didn't say that, so I have to say that, thereby making it about me. You set me up to make it about me. See? You didn't take two clicks, and it's back to being, it's Liam, sorry, Liam. I tried to make it about you, babe, but Christopher's, I mean, just Christopher's a pro. I am. I'm a pro-narcissist. Narcissist Maximus, that's me. Okay, um, so the specific, some more specifics of the story. January 1959, the team of 10 young hikers, notice the number is different than the one I gave you previously because one of them is actually going to pull away from the group before the incident unfolds. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Uh, the hikers are led by Igor Diablo. That's not how you pronounce his name, but that's how it looks phonetically in the notes. And that's how it's going to be here. Uh, ten days into their journey, they reach a peak known to locals as Dead Mountain, which really, like, that was not a sign. There's the tip-off, babe. Yeah. Also, we're just going to have to adjust to the fact that there is something in Russian culture that celebrates hiking into Siberia in the dead of winter. Like, I just, I guess, January. It's, <laughs> it's just, tell that story. Tell that story. It was some interview, I think, that John Stewart did or something, or G yeah. Stephen Colbert. They were interviewing this woman, mm -hmm. um, and they were talking about um, the, the sort of the bracing kind of interface between protesters and the government during the Olympics, mm. during the Winter Olympics. In Sochi, yeah. Um, was that where it was? Yes. Okay. Um Except it wasn't because it that was, was just it was just me was trying weird. to make it look like I was contributing. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they were interviewing this woman, and she said, "Well, it, she said in Russian, and they were translating the what she was saying. She said, "Well, we have a saying here in Russia, and the saying was 
don't be pussy. Mm. And it was like, oh, okay, wow. Yeah. So apparently, yeah, like being of tough stuff, being of stern stuff is is a tradition. Apparently you so. You take off your shirt and go hunt tigers or whatever, and then you get to be the 70-year-old dictator of the country. Monster who invaded Ukraine without mm. cause. Yeah. But we're not going to go there. There's no mention of Ukraine in the Dyatlov Fast Not incident. about this. Doesn't we, come up. We'll just go on the record as saying we don't support the invasion. No. We think it's a bad idea, and we think that Russia should go home and be a great country. I think yeah. they have potential to be a great country, and we don't know why they're so determined not to be. I don't know. Exactly. All right. So 10 days into their journey, as I said, earlier they reach a peak known as dead mountain in the middle of the night allegedly and this will come into dispute the hikers cut their way out of their tent which i guess is something you would you could possibly do if you were uh covered by an avalanche but there's no evidence that they were covered by an avalanche the incision marks on the tent will come under investigation as we continue through this. So, spoiler alert. But yeah, but they cut the, they cut through the tent, which I guess would mean that the exit was blocked in some way. It was the only way they could get out, or that's what the investigators thought at the time. The tracks in the snow later show that they fled down the mountain without boots on. And the snow is like you know knee deep, so knee deep. that's yeah. quite the choice. Weeks after they don't report back, the bodies are finally found more than a mile away from the tent, having suffered the inexplicable injuries we alluded to earlier. Burns, beatings, crushings, crushings. dismemberments. I just like the strangest collection of injuries and 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 then but hypothermia basically like they were they just froze. It was just not hospitable weather. Subpolar. Yeah. After the fall of—so all of this is happening in the 50s, the depths of the Cold War. After the fall of the Soviet Union, the original case file is released. And for those who are you know, going to make me feel old, the Soviet Union fell in the early 90s, right? It was 92, 93. It was about that the George Herbert Walker Bush right. was president here in Bush the United president. States. Yeah. Yes. So, after, so in that time, these— I don't want to call them conspiracy theorists, but conspiracy buffs, but also people connected to the region and the area and the hikers have obsessively poured through all the available materials that were... Because uh, it was such a bizarre death, and the conclusion was so mm, uh, unsatisfying. Unsatisfying. And hasty because the the Russian government wanted everybody to stop fucking talking about this and story. And I'm going to just draw a little line under that. Mm-hmm. All right, so... The, a couple figures step forward to become our talking heads, as they always do in a documentary like this. And in one of the, one of them is a Russian journalist who now lives in Eugene, Oregon, Svetlana Oss. And uh, she was the first one to break the—she broke the first English-language story about the group in the Moscow Times in 2007, which I thought was a really long time before English-language papers started talking about it. But I also remembered that during the Cold War— <laughs> We didn't know a lot about what was going on in Russia. I, there was, and they, there was a reason for that. They didn't tell us anything. Uh, should we just like I, one of the things yeah. that came up during the course of this particular, um, of this particular investigation was one of the things we didn't know about because of the Cold War was a really terrible nuclear accident that I had never, never heard of before never. that happened in Russia during the Cold War, and they just didn't tell anybody. It's really hard to describe for the younger people listening what the Cold War was like. It's hard to describe to them what it was like 
to live where mutually assured destruction was the only path of deterrence for global apocalypse. And it was a sort of daily kind yeah. of thing. You just, it was an ongoing consideration. We lived in fear that Russia was going to fire their missiles at us first, and we were going to fire our missiles in response, and that was literally going to be the end of the world. And they lived in fear that we were going to do that. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so that's your Cold War Minute with Christopher and Eric. Um, and also, we, as you just said, we knew nothing about what was going on inside that country. You know. Right. They were. It was a very secretive culture. It has become clear, I think, over time since the fall of the Soviet Union that the reason they were so secretive was that things were so bad there. Yes. And they didn't want the world to know how badly things were going for them. Absolutely. Um, so the criminal case appears to have begun before the hikers were reported missing. Um, this is sort of set up as a red herring. This is easily explained by a typo. Our documentarian is going through the files, and he says, the criminal case has a date of February 6, 1959, but the hikers didn't report back until February 12th. This is easily explained by the fact that one of the interviews in the files is misdated, and somebody copied that date onto the front cover. I don't know why he made such a big thing about this, because this is really wiped off the slate early but it's, on. But it's one of the things that conspiracy theorists point at when they're talking about it was that they can, that according to the official report, they began the investigation before they'd ever even right. um, reported back. So I guess it's sinister, except when you consider that it's a typo, it doesn't really mean much. Right. So the biggest thing that has fed conspiracy theories is that a camera was recovered around one of the victim's oh necks. And you, you, you were not moved. By it. So the final photograph is alleged to be of a light in the sky, but it is badly out of focus. And there's no sky involved. It's just this blur of light. It's yeah. like, yeah, or somebody dropped their camera, or it's a campfire and it's out of focus, or, you know, who knows what it was. There's literally nothing to the photograph. But we're at the, in the height of, you know, this, the, the, the lights in the sky. Was mm -hmm. it Because one of the big theories is that they were attacked by... Um, you know, hostile, I guess, extraterrestrials, right. Klingons came in from space and snatched them out of their tent and ran them out I, into the I snow. Be I believe that statement is Klingon-phobic and does not take into account the long arc of the Klingon empire. And I think our Trekkie guy in the booth is going to come in here and start schooling us about Star Trek if you talk smack about Klingons again in that context. So it's the Romulans then, <laughs> fine. Yes, absolutely. Or the Borg, right? Okay. Um, I glossed over the another aspect of this people were talking to. There's like a group of people in the region led by a guy named Yuri. A lot of Yuris in this. A lot of Yuris. Lots. It's the John of Russia. Maybe. Uh, who have poured over this evidence, and he, he is someone who believes the 34th frame, as they call it, which is that final picture, is very important to figuring out what went on. Why does he believe that? Uh, because he believes it is a falling object in the sky and that they took the photograph of it so quickly they couldn't focus the camera. That's their theory, and I feel like that becomes our filmmaker's theory as well. Uh, our filmmaker... Liam flies into Russia without anybody's permission, and <laughs> he takes one cameraman with him. And here's what was interesting about this. Cameras are now so good that you can do this and still have a, have a pretty impressive visual product at the end of it. Cameras yeah. are so small. And, like, it used to be you would have to, you know, you'd have a— You can go to Russia and make right. a documentary, and nobody knows you're making one. Exactly. Because they just think you're talking on the phone. So— um, 
he's sort of like serving up all of these little details at the beginning, and then he's interspersing them with his arrival in Russia and his sort of trekking out to the site of the Dyatlov Pass incident. So one of the big questions here is the tent. Why did they leave the tent? Why did they leave the tent not in their winter clothes or their boots? Uh, and then why didn't they return to it when the threat had passed since there's no evidence of an avalanche? I, the no evidence of an avalanche thing, do you think that was adequately covered by this documentary? Because, like, there was a lot of fucking snow out there. And there were a lot of photographs of the site where it was like... Yeah, I think there was no evidence of an You think avalanche. there was no evidence of an avalanche? Okay. I think that would have been a lot more apparent if yeah. there had been an avalanche. Like, it's... I think that... A lot of snow is not really an adequate description of an avalanche. <laughs> this is two non-outdoorsmen. Absolutely. This is somebody who does not actually walk on the three-foot-wide strip of grass in front That's of his apartment building. One of the weirdest um, talking things about, outdoor. about you. Yeah, one I just, weird. I don't walk on the grass. I, you know, I see what happens on that grass and I'm not walking on it. <laughs> I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and everyone here at TDPS would like to congratulate my co-host and best friend, Christopher Rice, also known as steamy romance author C. Travis Rice, on the publication of Sapphire Storm, the third novel in his Sapphire Cove series. Sapphire Storm is the drama-filled tale of a forbidden romance that exposes old secrets and incurs the wrath of the powerful and the famous. It went on sale March 7th, along with the first two entries in the series, Sapphire Sunset and Sapphire Spring, it's available wherever ebooks are sold. Congratulations, C. Travis Rice, and congratulations, Christopher. So we now enter the wow, there are a lot of victims to keep track of. Uh, part of the story because there are a lot. I mean, nine. I and don't know. it was interesting. He took the time to introduce us to them and kind yeah. of give us sort of a background. I, I don't know that it would be particularly useful for us to do, but just no. a sort of general sort of scattershot. <laughs> <laughs> Eric giving me his, please do not read all of the notes you included at this part. It oh, no, you can, you can no, do no, it. No, no, no. I agree with you. I agree with you. They were all members of a group called the Explorers Club. So they were out, an outdoors Sort of yeah, group. it was like a college group of college kids from yeah. some extracurricular activity. They thought it was going to look on good on their resume. And they were they were as outdoors people are. They were brave. Had a history of getting shot and shot at. Um, you know, like this reminded me that like Russia gives birth to all the YouTube videos of people who have a bear as a house pet. Like that. That's I was like, okay, this is the Russia we're talking about. Like, yes, we have Puma. He is our friend. It's like, the dash cams. <laughs> I just can't get enough of the dash cams. It's just like, oh my God, what is yeah. going on? Yes, yes. absolutely. Um, and if they would stop launching unjustified invasions, we could enjoy those things more That's liberally. What I, say. I think it should be a great country. I think they really have potential to be a great country if they would, would just be a great country. Please knock it off with your bullshit and stop so being we so can terrible. Enjoy yeah. your stop YouTube hating content. Stop gay people and oh, invading God. other people's countries. And yeah, yeah, just try being nicer people. Like, okay. I think probably most Russians probably are. I don't think it's the fault of most people. No, he's a dictator. I mean, that's what happens that when you have a dictator. Him. Yeah. Anyway, okay. We keep getting. This is long before Vladimir Putin 
came into power. Way before Vladimir Putin. He probably was still in school. So the group of victims, um, a lot of them kept diaries, and those are really the primary evidence sources. Like right up until the night of, they were talking about, they were documenting the journey. Um, this the, <laughs> There was no social media, so they actually had to write it down somewhere else. Absolutely. That formed a record. Um, there was a man who... Like, I think what he does here in the documentary is he introduces them as potential suspects, but really none of them emerge as compelling suspects of anyone who could have caught. Oh, 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 eyebrows, eyebrows. There's one member who leaves the group early. Is that who you want to talk about? You can talk about him, but yeah. no, I don't really have much thoughts about yeah. him. Okay. Um, uh, so. Also, we discover halfway through the documentary that the pass is actually named after the expedition leader, which is kind of like, is there a Donner Pass in the Sierra Nevada mountains? It seems like a morbid way of marking a geographic point in the wilderness. I didn't realize that. Yes, it's the Dyatlov Pass because Yuri Dyatlov, I believe. Igor. Or Igor Dyatlov um, was, in fact. Igor. Or I <laughs> No, we're never going to get through this if we make it about pronunciations. Okay. That's already gone very badly. So our filmmaker, he hires an expedition leader so he can visit the pass. And that expedition leader could could take me a lot of places. His name is Oleg Domenenko. And um, <laughs> he, is also, he also fills this in. He's interviewed and he says that there was another investigation the Russians recently conducted into the incident in 2018. And the report backed the avalanche theory, which is like, okay, but there's no evidence for the right, avalanche. Right, but there is no evidence of an avalanche, but so no. all of this is about, and the reason the avalanche theory won't die, is that they're, they're, why would these experienced outdoors people suddenly evacuate their tent, cut their way out of it with, with no time, apparently, to prepare, and no boots and no anything? Just They were clearly, they were either panicked, or they were being forced out of their tent by, wait for it, an unknown compelling force, which is the name of the documentary. And it is the thing that they say in the original reports. Right. But they quickly die of hypothermia because they make this because exit so quickly. it's freezing and they're not dressed. Um, uh, Vladislav Karelin, a friend who joined the search effort, said there was no trace of an avalanche in the area. He flew in by helicopter the next day. I assume this is the day after the disappearance, even before the bodies were found. Another friend of the group is interviewed. He's now 83 years old, Alexei Kutsvalo. He also doesn't believe the avalanche theory. These are all people who I believe were also students with them. They lived in the area. They visited. They also did sort of hikes through the Urals as well. So they would know. If the, they would be able to recognize an avalanche and they would know if something was amiss in the landscape out there. Um, and I guess the biggest strike against the avalanche theory is that in investigation photos from the time period, the ski poles that were anchoring the tent were not moved. They were in place. Um, so let's see. The next sort of area of investigation or the next theory, if you will, the conspiracy theory that has never died is that there are there is a group of indigenous people who live in the area known as the Mansi, um, who so the theory goes that there was allegedly a Mansi religious site that the hikers messed with because they were characters from an old horror movie, and the Mansi and when they picked up the idol, a huge stone came rolling <laughs> down the, and their hat they had to snatch their hat out from under. No, yeah, and so the um. 
they were murdered by the Monsi in retaliation for disturbing a religious site. The minute we start talking to the Monsi, this whole theory starts to fall apart. They're lovely. Yeah. And they actually volunteered to help right. in the investigation to search for the kids and to try and be. And they had, in fact, encountered them. Yeah. Um, and their trip, you know, like as they, they had met them as they were on their hike to get to Dead Mountain because that's where you want to go. Uh, since the 13th century, the Monsi and the Hunti people often united to defend their land against invaders. But by the time of the Soviet Union, their numbers had diminished and their land was being taken. Boy, this sounds familiar. But the Dyatlov team were said to be intrigued by the indigenous people and eager to learn more about their customs. They were not Americans, in other words. Yes. <laughs> They were, not, they were not the Americans in the horror movie. They were like, what curse? Let's have a party on this tomb. <laughs> Let's open a Starbucks. <laughs> All right. Want some fire water, Kimasabi? Right. Okay. Um. Let's see. So let's talk about the cut marks on the tent. Because this is where our Russian journalists just no, I'm just going to turn that <laughs> iPad off. I have no idea where we are anymore. Well, you're the one who suggested we sort of advance a little bit, you know. So I was I was leaving all the specifics about the victims behind because there's nine of them and it gets a little soap operatic. And there was one was dating so one. And I'm at the four days into their journey, the group reached settlement 41. 41. Are we there yet? Yes, and they stayed with the logging guys who lived there. Uh, they left their heavy packs there, and then they ski-hiked to their next stop, an abandoned former gulag with one intact hut. Where was the town where they got in, They got the train? Oh, I think we just we, we sped past that. We blew past that. Where we was that? We blew past that. Let's see. Where's the town? Yes, an instructor. Here we are. 37-year-old was previously known to the rest of the world. Yeah. Instructor, World War II. I'm sensing that Eric has a theory that he's worried we're not with the group and becomes inseparable with Nikolai. Yes, Thibodeau. Don't try to pronounce it. I'm just okay. telling you, don't try to pronounce Nikolai. it. Nikolai, the yeah. Joker among the group is 23 years old, wants to raise money, the only member to return alive. Yeah, no, we're just not going to talk about it. So I'll just bring it up later. You bring it up later. It's good. Um, okay, so. Uh, let's see. Four days into the journey, as we just said, the group reaches settlement forty-one. These are their sort of last outposts of inter- outposts of interacting with other people. Yes, yeah, you're raising just, your hand. I would yes. just like to make the point of, as these people are basically like walking to Siberia. Yeah. Um, as the course, as the trips, our intrepid documentarian um, is. <laughs> Is riding a ski mobile across uh, across Russia with uh, pack animals, bringing his uh, yes. his brandy and his tent and his uh, uh, his Ormolu fainting sofa right. and what have you. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. It's not that he goes off the snowmobile, and they have to go over an almost thawed river. It's at, very cold out at, there. At the very last, in the like the last hundred and fifty feet of the trip which takes them three days. He gets right. off the snowmobile. But but until then, like the the comparison between the trip that he's taking yeah. and the trip that these young people on is a little comical, I thought. It was really, <laughs> oh, it's snowing outside. No, we can't go out today. And it's like, okay, I'm not sure how but this is But it's not delivered about- like that. It's like the, the veils of snow prevented us from continuing our journey. Oh, yeah. and it's it's like, very dramatic. But yeah. it's like, but they're in this amazing uh, structure that has been carried and set up by their uh, their Sherpas from right. their, uh, their, I guess it was dog sleds. Yes. That were pursuing them and they were pulling like um, something behind their snowmobiles as well. It was really, it was like, yeah, this is, this is 
the closer to yes. the kind of roughing it I would be doing. And along the glamping. Way, and along the way, you would not even be glamping. We wouldn't be outside. I would what not are you be talking outside. about? It's ridiculous. I'd be at a hotel in Irkutsk. <laughs> you would be at a hotel in Paris, okay? Probably. Our gay asses are not going to Russia for the time being. <laughs> A lot is going to have to change. It. Do not ever expect us to do a show from Russia. Not until there's new not leadership. Until they don't want to kill gay Absolutely. people. That's just not okay with us. Because we are still gay. Because we're still huge gay people. Still huge gays. Well, Christopher's huge. I'm just a gay person. <laughs> All right. Let's get back to this horrible story. Meanwhile. Okay. So um, along the way, as our filmmaker makes this journey, he basically asks everybody their opinion. What do you think happened at the Dyatlov Pass to those hikers? And the theories get increasingly wacky, but but there is something to be said about the analysis that was done of the cut marks on the tent, because there is disagreement, and disagreement among people who we will meet later who actually have some credentials about whether or not the incisions were made from inside the tent and whether or not the available case files make that case, if you will. Um, but they also interviewed the local Monsi, and they don't seem like they murdered these people. <laughs> like lovely, as you said. And, huh. Yeah. And oblivious to the snow. That woman is talking to him on camera and just closes her eyes as the snow, like as a blizzard, just puts a, <laughs> blows into her face. She never stops talking. She just closes her eyes because right, yeah. that's what you do if you live in blizzard country. I guess. <laughs> I, like, okay, wow. <laughs> totally what, unmoved by that's it. That's my favorite country song. That's what you do in blizzard country. <laughs> da, 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 da. Okay. All right. We got to work on that. Um, one of the more bizarre theories is a Russian Yeti. One of the more fucking bizarre theories of absolutely everything is a goddamn Bigfoot theory. I just, Bigfoot theories are the, like, <laughs> coronavirus of conspiracy bullshit. It's just one of those things where it's like, yeah, just pick something else. Like, yeah. the, I'm fine with the Loch Ness Monster, but the Bigfoot is just like, how is that even possible? Here's the deal. Here's what's happening out there. And what's I researched on? this for a book idea, and I did not go down the Bigfoot. Um, avenue, if you will. <laughs> Bigfoot Boulevard, I did not take. <laughs> there, There is an increasing uh, school of thought, calling it a school is maybe a bit generous, that they are cosmic time tra <laughs> they are cosmic time travelers and it has something to do with crystals and the reason we never catch them or see them is because they're going through portals and coming in and out. I think it has something to do with crystal. <laughs> crystal methamphetamine, you mean? In, in South Carolina, they have lizard man. Yes. I also think probably unlikely to be a, a <laughs> real thing, but yeah. Um, the hikers made a fake newspaper article about their experience as a joke amongst their friends, and one of them was a fake article, included a fake headline about the Russian Yeti, which they were clearly making fun of. But conspiracy theorists have taken this as evidence that oh, they well knew. As well as one of their blurry, yeah. they're apparently terrible photographers, and yeah. so you can make their photographs seem like they're anything. Or it was terrible conditions to be photographing stuff. It was stuff. country. <laughs> <laughs> and their camera froze solid and had to be thawed out. Exactly. So um, they, they again say a few of the out-of-focus photos could be a Yeti. A lot of things could be a Yeti. Yes, you, absolutely. You could be a I Yeti. I could be a Yeti if I hadn't shaved before I came today. <laughs> I might be mistaken for a Yeti. Uh, okay. I'm not that hirsute. That, so, would, that would never happen. So on the final day that we have any record of their experience, I guess the final day of diary keeping, the weather is so bad they can only go a mile before pitching camp. They leave a cache of food along the way for their return, the return that never takes place. And it's not until February 21st that the first team of search parties are deployed. Are deployed. Deployed. 
it's Floyd. And we thought the Russian pronunciations yeah, were going to be gonna hard. going to get rough just with English around here. Evgeny Ninyuyev was a member of another hiking group in the area that was supposed to connect with the Dyatlov group. So Evgeny. Evgeny, thank you. The tent is found on February 26th by two student hikers accompanied by a local forestry worker who lived and worked alongside the local Monsi. His last name was Pashin. For some reason, they don't report the finding right away, and they later testify that they didn't go inside the tent. The students accompanied by Pashin find the tent, and Pashin won't go up the slope with them. They find the, a flashlight left on top of the snow. This has been another piece of evidence that people have really uh, seized on. Why was a flashlight left out in the open? Um, they find clothes, the clothes they didn't put on, but maybe would have lived if they had. Then further down the slope, 15 to 20 meters away, they find footprints in the snow. The tracks, as we said earlier, were left by people without shoes, but they marched side by side, and their footsteps don't indicate panicked flight. What do we think they mean by that? Because you were pointing out that, like, walking at all in the snow, like, I mean, it was like going up to their knees and their waist, so... How can they tell the footsteps? Like, you were going to have to slow down. It didn't matter if you were being chased by a Yeti or aliens. The, there's not going to be a lot of running in knee-deep snow, but I guess they were... I guess it would not have been distinct footsteps. It I would guess. have been, like, drag marks in the snow because they would have been pulling their legs through the snow rather than taking another step. I don't know. I don't know how you tell one footstep from another. Not a tracker. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at facebook.com slash thedinnerpartyshow. No, I meant in the car. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? After finding the footsteps, they then find the first of two bodies. They're half naked. They're in the presence of what they describe as having been a pretty decent fire made of cedar and fir tree branches. A... <laughs> No, not at my notes say a thousand miles away. That can't be right. A thousand feet away, a thousand meters Probably away. Probably a thousand miles away would be Moscow. Yeah, a thousand yeah. meters away, they find the group leader's body. He's collapsed by a small birch tree uh, that is facing the direction of the tent. He's dressed more warmly. 
he's collapsed. Oh, he is collapsed by a small. I, the birch tree didn't collapse. Him. I thought he, he collapsed. I, he collapsed by a birch tree. Yeah. He was like, got it. I'm sorry. I was like, it, it, what did the birch tree do I, I to this poor man? I can see how my thousand show miles me, away didn't give you confidence in my notes. So show me I where the birch tree hurt you. Yes. He's dressed warmer, but he has no hat, shoes, or gloves. Weird that one of them would be dressed more warmly than the others, unless he was sleeping that way. Anyway, uphill by about 350 meters, they find the body of one of the female members of the group. She is roughly in a fetal position and also dressed more warmly than the others. This is important to point out because it, there will be a theory that they were forced out of the tent by armed people. So it's un, it doesn't make any sense that the armed people would have let some of them get dressed and some of them not get dressed. I don't understand what that's about. But anyway, okay. Another body is found face down and facing the direction of the tent. They, they're they pointing out whether or not they were in the direction of the tent because they're trying to establish whether or not they tried to get, tried back, to get back to, to the, the tent. tent. Yes, that seems likely. Uh, by now, five bodies have been found. They're flown off for autopsies. At this point, they don't know where the other hikers are. Um, they're all found, the bodies that are flown away, to have suffered various cuts and bruises, specifically bruises, cuts, and abrasions to the nose, eyebrows, and cheeks. Also, they were found on the knuckles and the back of the hands. The official explanation for this is that they fell over, which doesn't make any sense. Again, knuckles, like, yeah, you would you, brace you yourself. You skend your knuckles on the snow? Like, I'm not even sure what that was supposed to mean. These people were involved in physical violence. They were fighting. Yeah. Uh, they interview a man named Boris Baichov. He's a friend of the Dyatlov group, and he says uh, the investigators enlisted other students. And he went on to make those cookies that they give you on um, Delta flights. <laughs> yes, exactly. I don't think that's the same thing. You don't think it's the same name? No, I don't I think, think it's, it's a different same. family. Same. Um, he says the investigators were enlisting other students to spread the words that the authorities were trying to blame the hikers for what happened to them. So the investigators were out of step with the authorities in the early stages. They didn't believe the authorities were actually supporting them. The hikers are barely— Really? Imagine. I imagine the Cold War Soviet Union being secretive. And unsupportive of it, <laughs> of a searching investigation. The hikers are buried quietly hundreds of miles away from their home cities. Under mounting pressure, they're forced to return the hikers home. Can you fucking believe that they just decided to bury them, like, without returning them to their families? Like, oh, my God. I'm, I know. I'm a Cold War. It's yeah. just, yeah. Like, I can imagine I was alive in this time period. Yeah. It was, yeah. Well, I was actually just born in this time period, but, but still. You were a newborn fighting dictatorships and oppression. It's not like, and then suddenly in the 60s, everything got better. Yeah, no, no, I, yeah. Um, okay, so this is the point in history where rumors about this start to spread like wildfire, and the Soviet Union does not like rumors spreading. At all. They're anti-talking. <laughs> They're anti-talking. Speaking out loud. Not crazy about it. And that really shifts, and that'll get at the larger theory of this documentary at least, that shifts their treatment of the investigation. They want everyone to shut up. Unfortunately, some other hikers in the area witnessed a weird celestial event. Was this the object in the mysterious 34th photo, 34th frame from the cameras recovered from the hikers? This hiker who saw the event says what he saw in the sky matched footage he later saw of a Soviet rocket launch. Uh, many involved with the foundation, that's the Dyatlov Pass Foundation, believe the rocket theory is the most plausible 
but they have to explain why a rocket would scare these people so badly that they would run out into the freezing cold with no winter clothes on. After cutting open their tent. And and there are no signs of an explosion or debris, and the injuries don't suggest a rocket blast. Even though some of them are burned, it's really very it's very specific and not pervasive. So, yeah, it was... And there's no other evidence of a rocket blast. And I would just throw in, you know, for... um color, context, you can see a rocket launch for hundreds, if not thousands of miles. So, like, we saw one coming home from Thanksgiving a couple of years ago. It was completely flipped us out. And and Brandon, once again, came to the rescue and told us, oh, it was just Elon. It was SpaceX. Okay, so three months later, melting snows reveal cut branches that seem to form um, a trail from the cedar tree that we mentioned earlier. There, buried under 10 feet of snow, they find a small den with more cut branches laid to make a makeshift floor. There is no sign of the hikers in the den. Um, But then the searchers who are called out in response to this begin probing the nearby snow with long sticks down and down over and over again, and then they encounter flesh. And they find the body of one of the female hikers. I think one whose diary later formed the basis of this investigation. Um, And they find her lying close to several others. And it looks like they were possibly trying to conserve warmth. At this point, when it comes time to evacuate these bodies, the helicopter pilots involved are so afraid of radiation because the rumors that this has something to do with a rocket or something nuclear or the KGB. And everybody was terrified of radiation at that time. Plus, they had had that nuclear accident they hadn't told us anybody about that maybe they knew about. Which we're, gonna, which we're sneaking up on. Um, they refused to transport the bodies in the helicopter until they're placed in zinc-lined cases. Did those work? Because I'm, you know, knowledgeable about all things nuclear radioactivity based. I think anything that would prevent like lead, I think, is the thing I've heard most. But mm-hmm. maybe zinc works, too. I think anything to to prevent the little radiation rays to, from getting to you is better than nothing. Yeah. Okay. Um, this is where we get into some really weird injuries. Like those things they make you wear at the dentist office. Yes, the, absolutely. That has like lead in it, doesn't it? Or maybe it's zinc. It's fine that you don't know. It's fine that you didn't know. I didn't mean to make you feel put on the spot. I just figured you're I'm so sorry. smart. Do you feel like I'm defensive about <laughs> you're this? So smart. I want to move on to the really weird injuries. Okay, what's the weird? Talk, let's talk about them. Chests are crushed. Eyeballs are missing. A tongue is missing. Now, the explanation for the missing eyeballs and the tongue is that that particular corpse was resting face down in melting snow, and they say it rotted off the face to such a degree that it removed the tongue and the eyeballs, which still, really? And there was so much water in this freezing temperatures? Like, I just thought that was, like, where's all this water coming from? Well, it's coming from the snow melt. They're found in May, and it's the melting snow that reveals them. So I assume it's runoff. Absolutely, like, because yeah. it's now b- a balmy <laughs> 32 degrees at the North Pole. Like, what the hell? I don't know. I don't know. It's like, I don't think we have enough experience with the outdoors to analyze this This evidence. takes place outside, so we're going to have to bring in an expert. We're doing all indoor crime on our podcast. <laughs> it's an indoor crime podcast. We're going to look for people who are poisoned with tea, because that's all we drink. That's really all we know about. Okay. Um, the wounds are not investigated further. Another body has uh, suffered a devastating crushing impact while still alive, and it is still not investigated further. Um, so, And I mean, like, lungs caved in and 
um, somebody's rib goes through their heart and stuff. I mean, just crushed. Right. Uh, okay, so we now meet an expert criminalist named Natalia Sakharova. Who is not having it. She, is, she has followed this case for years, and she is sick of bullshit in general. Right. And she's going she's gonna to address the issues. She's also going to address the fact that the um, clothing of the victims was tested for radioactivity, which is— we're getting up on your big right, point. which is just like the the mind blower from the whole special for me. Uh, but this is what she really focuses on, and she says that the photos of the incisions, I guess you would call them, the cuts in the tent that are available in the case file, do not by themselves make a compelling case that the cuts were coming from inside the tent. That the 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 tell with that is. What the ends of the incisions look like, where the fibers are at the at the very end, or I guess the beginning of the cut, and though an image of those is not included in the files, and you can't tell, they just have a p- pictures of the sort of mid incision area, which don't tell you what direction the knife was cutting. So that's a pretty big. I mean, that says maybe somebody cut open their tent while they were sleeping. It leads credence to the force them out of their tent theory. Right. It okay. certainly. Shuts down the the sort of insanity. Like they they're portrayed as though they just suddenly lost their minds. Mm-hmm. And some of the and like why at this point in this journey would these people just suddenly go insane? This is, one theory was that they attacked each other. Yeah. So to to reexamine what's available of the autopsy, the filmmaker brings in a guy named Ken Holmes, who was the Marin County Coroner's Office. Uh, and an FBI agent named Mick Fennerty, who was who's retired now but spent 15 years on evidence response team, was pictured with the president. Like, clear, these were men with resumes. Who seemed really disturbed that he was even being asked about this. He was like, <laughs> okay, Mick, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Fine. Calm down. It's going to be fine. Um, the Ken Holmes says he disagrees with the accuracy of the conclusions for at least seven of the bodies that were found. He said the amount of trauma precluded an accidental fall from their own heights. That's the, that's the theory they keep saying. Well, they fell down, and it's like they fell down and lost their tongue and eyes. Like, it's just none of it's And cr- caved in their chest? Like, yeah. Yeah, like there's an even explanation for the, the bruising on their knuckles from falling down. Two different victims suffered caving chest wounds. And the autopsy, or Ken Holmes, I should say, establishes that they could not have come from the same event or the same impact. Um, It could have been someone stomping on them, but the rib fractures are high and only go about halfway down, which is not typical of a bad fall. More likely, he was stationary and something came down on him. The female victim had her heart punctured by her rib fractures, which is more typical of a fall from a height as high as 50 feet. Which wasn't a possibility. wasn't a possibility. This is the victim whose eyeballs and tongue are missing. The autopsy, as we said before, it says because she was face down in a stream. Um, I don't see how that explains the tongue. Like Anyway, another victim has a bad head blow. Another has neck injuries suggesting yeah, I possible mean, like, strangulation. Blunt force trauma. Like somebody hit you in the head with a tire iron head trauma. Another victim has a bad burn to their left leg. How do you get burned in a blizzard? Um, but it's not so bad that it would explain why he didn't return to the tent. So he could walk, I guess is what they're saying. Um, so, you know, it, the list kind of goes on. There's more. You know, the group leader was found close to the tent, suggesting that he tried to go back. Right. Um the Marin County coroner's final verdict is that others were present and overpowered them. And if you couple this with the um, 
you know, the doubt that the forensic analyst casts on the incisions in the tent, you're getting back to this, you know, armed men came out of the woods for some reason. Uh, the autopsies don't include lung or throat enter, um, that suggests exposure to a volatile gas. So the filmmaker at this point is thinking that the lights in the sky are a red herring that continually derailed the case. I take it you agree. You were not. Um, I just no. was not impressed. It's not nearly enough evidence, and there is no corroborating evidence. Like none of the other evidence on the ground suggests that a huge meteorite fell out of the sky. There was a missile blast. The mm-hmm. aliens landed, and you know, gave them really, really rough anal probes. Whatever it was, right. they, none of those things are really supported by it. So it just seems like this is some random photograph, like the photograph that they have that that gave birth to the Yeti theory. Mm-hmm. Was they said this is obviously this guy. This is his outfit. This is his. You know, it was just a blurry photograph. Like. That didn't mean there was a Yeti there. It was just a blurry photograph. And I think the same was true of the the, the light in the sky. You couldn't even tell it was in the sky. You, you couldn't tell what it was. No. It could have been a flashlight coming out of focus Absolutely. out of the woods. Okay, so, but, you know, that's that's more convincing is that someone managed to try to snap a photo of armed people coming with flashlights. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So let's talk about the clothes. The clothes were the beginning of a new angle to this documentary that I didn't see coming and you mentioned it earlier. Yes. So they're testing the clothes for radiation to, to supposedly rule out any kind of nuclear accident or contact with a rocket. I don't know. Um, what they discover is there are some basic levels of radiation present on one of the victims in particular who had a history of working at a nuclear site, and this was a nuclear site that suffered, a nuclear facility, I should say, which suffered a major explosion a year and a half earlier, which contributed or caused the worst nuclear disaster after Fukushima and Chernobyl. So by today's standards, it's three. At the time, it was one. Right. And you never heard anything about it. never heard of it before in my life. Yeah. So, but, okay, so that's where it comes from, likely. But and then he gives his sweater to somebody who gives the yeah. sweater to somebody else, and so they can trace that because somebody else was wearing his sweater, that's why two of them had the the residual nuclear uh, ra- higher radioactivity levels than the others, but nobody else did. And so this is the beginning of what I would call the more grounded of the conspiracy theories around this story, which is that the reason the authorities got involved so quickly is, one, because somebody said strange lights in the sky right away. So okay, we got to make sure that's not us. But then when they found out former employees of this facility that had this meltdown nobody was talking about were members of the group, they were concerned that they might have absconded to America, that this might have been a smokescreen, this disappearance, this incident. And so... The minute they were their bodies were found, they were like, okay, shut this thing up. We don't care. Stop the investigation. Just come up with a conclusion. They fell. They broke their legs. Right, whatever. Nobody we don't defected. Care. That's all we care about here. So yeah. that's it. No more searching uh, to find out who caused this. Yeah. And so um, the FBI invade, uh, the, the FBI agent sort of seems in one moment to give more fuel to the Monsi theory saying – the fact that they helped doesn't really tell you anything because perpetrators typically get involved in the investigation or, or often do get involved to sort of monitor. Um, but there's nothing there. He interviews more people from the area, and it's just there's— And I think it overestimates the level of sophistication in the Monsi as, yeah. like, 
if they'd wanted to kill the people, they just would have. You know what I mean? Like, I, it doesn't seem like the going back and monitoring the investigation would have been an as, a cultural aspect that I would have expected from the Monsi. But they, they also didn't have the type of tomb structures that were included in that conspiracy theory. I mean, there were bad things going on, very similar to attempts to re-educate the Monsi, relocate them, put them in schools that were about you know, trying to erase their religious traditions, similar things that happened here with the indigenous people in America. Um, but they, they talk to people who have worked to preserve Monsi traditions and artifacts out in that region. They've never found any evidence of this, and they've never found any evidence of weird, violent aggression around religion or their religious ceremonies or sites or anything like that. Um, so... This sort of brings us to the end where he— Well, there's the one other yeah. um, religious group, the 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 Hansi or the Hansi or the— Yes, I spelled it phonetically Hanti, but I think it's actually spelled with a K, but I think Kanti. That's my best in him. Um, and they were, they were uh, migratory, and they were not friends with the Monsi, so they were sort of an indigenous tribe that would pass through. And the Monsi didn't speak well of them, but— yeah then that might be, you know, again, some sort of cultural interface that didn't work out, but isn't necessarily, um, in, um, in, doesn't necessarily indict them for this crime, for committing this crime. So pretty much everybody who has been interviewed along the way says nothing about this could have been an accident, which I kind of think is where you're falling on this, that this was not an accident. The original journalist... <laughs> where, would that, where would any evidence of that be? The original journalist, Svetlana, out in Oregon, finally says the thing that I would have said or have been screaming at the screen since the beginning. If it was a Russian military plot, they would never have left the bodies out there like that. And that's the thing that the human violence element is why did you leave this evidence of your crime? If you had a capable enough operation to be out there to begin with and to force all these people out, in their t out of their tents, why did you leave the bodies everywhere? Put them on a sled. I mean, at least dig, dig a mass grave somewhere deeper. There were woods nearby. This was a sort of open area, but then there was a forest. I don't know. It was like, I'm not in the habit of doing this, thank God. So I don't really, you know, I just make this shit up. But so in July 2020, Russian officials released their findings of a new two-year investigation, the one they started in 2018. They're refusing still to consider any criminal activity. They found the cause of the death of the group to be an avalanche and subsequent natural events, which don't appear to be defined. And in August 2020, the same department called into question the findings of its own lead investigator, and today the case remains unsolved. So what the fuck happened? Well, you know, I think that the short answer is we're probably never really going to know unless but some amazing development happens. But, you know, this is I think this is a good case for Occam's Razor. Okay. Tell, like, tell our listeners, our party people, what the, Occam's razor the is. The simplest, it's, it, it is the theory that the simplest explanation is the most likely. Like, the thing about all of the explanations and all of the conspiracy theories is that they're incredibly complicated. Mm -hmm. And, okay, and they might be true. You know, maybe it's a Yeti or Spaceman or the Monsi were suddenly became bloodthirsty monsters and then never were again. Or, mm -hmm. you know, I... Any of those things are possible. Um, but what did happen was on their journey, um, one of their party, whose name was Yuri, mm -hmm. of course, um, 
because all of them were named Yuri. It was good. It was originally called the Yuri Club, and then some girls wanted to join, so yeah. they had to change it to the Explorers Club. Um, is horsing around in a town that they're at along the way, along the journey, and he gets into it with the police, mm-hmm. and they arrest him, and the the entire group goes and advocates on his behalf. Mm. And so the entire group has an altercation and a conflict with a group of police in a small Russian town during the Cold War. Mm. And Mm. then, not too long after that, somebody comes in the middle of the night, cuts open their tent, drags them out into the snow, beats them to death, mm-hmm. sets them on fire, and leaves their bodies where they found them because they're just small-town policemen, so they don't have facilities to be evacuating dead bodies back to some other place. And they figure, who'll ever know? And, you know, it's 50 years, 60 years later, and who does know? So nobody, mm. like, that just seems like a really, the most likely, they knew where they were going, they knew who they were, mm-hmm. and they pissed them off. Right. And it was not a time that you wanted to piss off any authorities in Russia. It looks like maybe now's not even a time, although some things have changed. Um, mm-hmm. It was really a bad time to piss off the authorities in um, in the Soviet Union at that point, and they did. Mm-hmm. And they did it as a group, and it was very clear where they were, what their destination was. So if they wanted to get even with them for disrespecting their authority or whatever mm-hmm. it was, they knew exactly where to find them. And um, this was clearly an attack by some group of people motivated to attack them. And the only group that was presented mm-hmm. in the entire story was the police from that small town. The small town, because one of them needed money and he decided to panhandle. Almost as a joke, and the cops were not having they it. They were not having it, and they, and they arrested, arrested him. him. And his friends all went to, and and that is the one. The, the basis of your theory is the one detail I skipped over in my notes earlier. So, <laughs> so we don't even have the name of the town. But I was like, oh, no, we're not I going... think it's in there somewhere. This was a big. This was a lot of note taking. This was a big this was documentary, a big, and because yep. it's like that thing we did about. Um, D.B. Cooper, where they mm-hmm. went and found three random people and said, these are the most likely candidates. And I was like, well, who says? Yeah. Because none of these candidates seem particularly likely to me. Like, they were so focused on all of the other extraneous investigations because this was as much about all the theories as it was about what happened. Right. In fact, it was probably more about all the theories than it was about what happened. Well, and I also, I should, ha- I should say, I think getting back to the documentarian structure of trying to intersperse all of this with his own journey to the site, that wasn't a really effective organizing structure for the amount of information. And the thing that was the most amusing to me about that was when it finally, when finally the snow cleared enough that he was willing to actually go to the site, they didn't film it or include it in the documentary at all. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's just, they just dropped it. I was Mm -hmm. like, Okay, so yeah. you dragged us all the way here, and we're not even going to get to see you go to the actual site yeah. and, I don't know, make a magic pass or something. There was some rock that they had yeah. gone to that they there included was a monument us. And that rock. was, yeah. and they kept pointing to that, but that was not the site. And so mm-hmm. it was like, okay, sure. Yeah, that like, was the site fine. of the tent, right? Or the tent was on the base of that mountain. I, they something, put it, yeah. That, but the, the point is that it. you're right. It did not serve to really... Um, to really um, 
provide the best means of describing. It was interesting, and it was it did give us a good look at the people, their diaries, and their um, their photographs were probably the most interesting part of the story to me. But when I heard that they got into it with the police in a small town, and yeah, the you know the I don't know wherever the hell they are in the Ural Mountains or wherever the um, is it Siberia? I have no idea. Yeah. Um, that um, that oh okay well there yeah, it is there it because is. they were clearly attacked by a hostile group of people that's obvious to me a hostile group of people that was comfortable launching an attack in a blizzard in the middle of the Ural Mountains or, right. or in, a, in in the vast wintry wilderness like yeah and they were dragged out of the tent in whatever condition they were found frog marched out into the wilderness yeah. and beaten and left to die which they did yeah. like okay the tongue though. I'm stuck on the tongue. What do you think about the tongue in the Somebody eye? smarted off and got their tongue ripped out. Ooh. You know what I mean? You know, I just, yeah. I, it's just, this this was a brutal, violent attack. Mm-hmm. And some of them fought back, and the evidence is on their bodies that they actually fought back yeah. against their attackers. And they didn't need to shoot them because they were, you know, barefoot in the snow. They knew they weren't long for this world no matter wow. what happened. And so they jumped up and down on them and kicked them and beat them to death. Jesus. You know, and left them in the snow to die of hyperthermia, which mm-hmm. they knew would kill them. There you go. Eric solved it. I just, I don't know that it was them, but they were the only, they were the only thing that was presented as a possibility. Yeah. And because it was the authorities, because mm-hmm. it was official authorities, there would be a vested interest on the part of the greater authorities of the Soviet Union to shut down the crime and shut down the investigation because we don't want it reported that mm-hmm. our local police are beating teen- beating teenagers and college students to death and leaving right. them to die in the snow. Like Absolutely. that's bad press. So we're not that didn't happen. So as long as we know none of them are defecting to rat out that we had this nuclear accident, mm-hmm. um, then we're de- we're good. We don't yeah. need to, any more information. We know who killed them. Indeed. I agree. I was waiting for your take, and I agree. I agree. I agree. Okay, on our next episode. Right? More wintertime crime. Ice Cold Killers is the series we're serving up, an episode called Open Season, Season 5, Episode 6. Standard disclaimer, you do not have to watch to enjoy our podcast. I mean, you might have to do drugs to enjoy our podcast. But the idea of the podcast is, like a book club, we all watch the same show, and then we all talk about it, which we're trying to become more interactive <laughs> about, but we're not sure if we're ever going to succeed at that, but we are trying. But you can watch and then you can, you know, follow along and see how we did, or you can not watch it all. And as you see, it's nothing but spoilers, so you're not going to need to after you watch the show. And as many people say, they hate watching true crime shows and they would much rather have us describe yes. it to them. So Cindy Conforti, we love you. She said she tried to watch the show and it was way more boring than what we do and she likes our show more. And that we call that the Cindy Conforti rule. I just want to say I want to get through the next episode without accidentally referring to the show as Ice Road Truckers because every time I see Ice Cold Killers, I want to say Ice Road Truckers. I keep thinking, for some reason, Ice Cold Killers keeps making me think of um, Jonelle Sams. Oh, Jonelle Sams. That warm, that warm, comfortable killer or yes. whatever that PSA she did. One of our special correspondents from the Dinner Party Show, which you can find all the episodes of on our website, our marriage consultant. An ice cold killer. I can just hear her saying it. Absolutely. Well, we'll have to go back and look and see what that's about. Until then and forever after, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks. Okay, that's lunch.
This is TDPS.